What can we learn about culture, policy, and people through an exhibit about absinthe? We talk about it on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Hello, everybody. We're here today with Ray Bordelon. Ray is the curator and the wonderful collector of all of the materials that we have in the Absinthe Gallery here in SoFab. So that's like Galerie d'Absinthe. And uh, it's really fun to have him here to talk to you a little bit about the thought process that went into putting together the gallery. So welcome. Thank you. We're having some technical difficulties here. (laughs) We're socially distanced. That's right. (laughs) So, Ray. Tell me how it was and when it was that you first became interested in absinthe. Well, long story short, it would be about close to 20 years ago. And it all started with going to a secondhand store and finding an absinthe store and wanting to know what it was for, what it was used for, and the history behind it. And the more I found out, the more it intrigued me. And just like a bad child, when it was for something that was forbidden, you wanted. <laughs> so one thing led to the next. And before you know it, this, this I don't know what you call it, fascination, um, obsession with absence and all things absence just kind of developed and has manifested itself in what you see now here at the museum. So tell me, how did you feel when you first tasted absinthe? It was a different taste, and um, I can only associate it with, um, I like anise. Well, and that's that is one unfortunate. Of the so that was a big plus. Yes. I like the anise, and um, I tolerate alcohol, so that's not a problem either. But um, the combination of the two, was very interesting. It was like something I had never tasted before. And it just won me over. It's one of my favorite drinks. So is that something you did right away? As soon as you learned about the absinthe spoon, did you say, well, I better go find out about I have to find out what the absinthe was, what did it taste like? Um, And then, like I said, finding out that it was still illegal at the time. Um, You couldn't get it. You could get things that claim themselves to be absinthe-like but they weren't. Um, so like herb saint or herb saint, yeah, yeah, it was like a, a, an absent substitute, so to speak. So, so what did you do? I mean, since it was banned, it wasn't going to be an easy It test. wasn't. It took years. Um, I went to a couple of bars here in New Orleans where they claimed they had absence in Europe and they were serving it on the QT. Mm-hmm. And you could get it there, but I don't know exactly what kind of a grade of product we were getting at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, it wasn't adulterated. It was a legitimate product being sold. It wasn't something put in the kitchen. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't drinking that. You can't be sure about that. But um, 
it gave you the flavor of what it should have been. And then once things started to develop and I met Ted Grow and Ted was working with trying to get access legalized again and uh, all that kind of brought about absence being legalized again. And then you could really taste what good absence is supposed to taste like. So did you find yourself getting drawn into sort of a community of people who were Yes, uh, people that were interested in not only the um, accoutrement for absence, but the history. And it touched a lot of things in history. It touched art, it touched poetry, it touched music, theater, besides the liquor itself. So it, it, it kind of touched a little bit of everything. And it was a whole culture at the time it was popular. And New Orleans being the little Paris of North America, Anything that was going on in France at the time, in France at the time that was in vogue, eventually ended up here in New Orleans. So New Orleans had has had absent shift here. I think my research um, had it as early as 1832. It was being imported here, and it was here ever since then. I mean, it's been here. Well, and of course, it wasn't banned. And it wasn't banned until 1912. In 1909, um, uh, another place in 1910, and it wasn't until 1912 when it was banned here, 1915 in Paris, France. So, of course, you have to have been born with the collecting gene. Yes. Because of the flawed gene <laughs> of collecting and hoarding. <laughs> so, this, of course, gave you just basically so many things to collect because there was all the the various paraphernalia that come together fixing the drink and then all, all things to do with it the, the the advertising for the liquors the um, um the marketing material the marketing material the crates the boxes the posters um the literature um just like I said, it touched a little bit of everything. So there was so much out there to collect. It's like, what do you collect? And I could not just focus in on one thing, like just spoons or just bottles. I did it all. So what I ended up putting together was just a well-rounded experience of it. And then not only the old stuff, but brought it into today after absence was made legal again. And all these flood of new accents have come out since then. And we tried to show that in the museum also. We have like 40 or 50 different brands of new accents. Just to give you an idea of the marketing that went into that and the label, some of them try to harken back to the old look. But to kind of get a feel for um, what's out there now. And it's continuing. I mean, they have it's still a very popular brand. So did you also sort of spread out into other anise-flavored things? No. Um, absinthe is funny as to where it mixes with some things and some things that don't. Because I know people are always trying to come up with new recipes for absinthe, new cocktails to use it in. And it's a funny liquor in that some things it will pair with nicely, and then other things it is about all. I've tasted some experiments, and, and it's like, you want to drink it. But some things it will pair with quite nicely and it makes it drink. And maybe not a full shot of it or so, you might just use a rinse in the glass or just a, a spritz of it just to give you that little bit of a flavor of kick. 
So it, it has a multi-use, and people are even now starting to use it in cooking. Mm -hmm. they're, so they're finding different uses for it besides just making um, a drink cocktail. But when you started to collect, did you collect beyond access? In other words, did you go into Anacin? Well, it led me into oozes. It led me into that yet yeah, as an Arakra zoo when I was um, I left New Orleans for Katrina. We were over in Texas and we couldn't find any absent there, but we found a, a rock razook, which mm -hmm. is like an ouzo type thing, and it had that flavor and mix it with water. So that that was really good. And uh, in addition to that, there are other um, anisettes, like I'm um, thinking one of the brand names right now. Um, well, they may call them liquors or rupia schnapps and everything. I forget their name. Are you talking bowls or they make all the different flavors. They have an anisette, they have peach schnapps, they have a brandy, they have blackberry. Um, it's a brand name. Yeah, the one that comes to mind to me is bowls, but that's obviously There's another one. one. But anyway, yeah. they originally had an absinthe substitute flavor because we have one of the bottles in the museum. So um, everybody was trying after, and that was a funny thing. When absinthe was made, when it was still illegal and prohibition hit, when prohibition was over, like 1934, a lot of these distillers here in New Orleans, anyway, thought, oh, we can make absinthe again now. Well, they tried it, and the government basically shut them down and said they could not make absinthe. They repealed the prohibition law, but they did not heal the 1915 ban on absinthe. Mm -hmm. So they were splitting hairs with it. A perfect example is Mr. Um, Marion Legendre, who did Herb Saint. Mm -hmm. He originally claimed his product was an absinthe type substitute and it had no wormwood in it, but that's been debated back and forth. But his bottle, when he first put it back out after Prohibition 1934, said Legendre was absent, and they made him confiscate all of his bottles he had sold, recall them back in, and made him stop using the word absinthe on the labels. So how did Absinthe get that reputation for well, being an hallucinogenic? Yeah, thing? it's 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 a kind of a long, complicated story, but I'll try to <laughs> shorten it somewhat. Absinthe got a bad rap. It started out being used medicinally. Um, it was given to the troops in the Algerian War to purify water and to ward off fever, so it was issued as a ration to the troops. And it had been around since 1805, being used medicinally. Well, good absinthe is no worse for you than good gin, good rum, or good vodka. Adulterated absinthe can be dangerous. And what happened was, just like today, when something becomes very popular, people of a lesser caliber start making knockoff brands. And in order to get it looking, to look and act like the good action, which the Cadillac at that time was Pernod. They started putting things in it to make it loche properly and to give it the green color, and they were putting things like copper sulfate in it, which is poison. Mm -hmm. Now, and it was definitely cheaper than the better branded action. Mm -hmm. Therefore, people that didn't have a lot of means, starving artists, people, you know, of lesser me, could buy this stuff. And drink it at will. And you also had people with addictive personalities because you got to remember at the time all this was going on, you could go smoke opium, mm -hmm. you could use heroin, you could do anything. And they had opium dens, mm -hmm. and it was legal. Mm -hmm. 
So if you had, for example, an addictive person with an addictive personality, you could go smoke opium one evening and then go home and shoot heroin and then buy a bottle of cheap absinthe and drink it. And then if you go kill somebody, they go blaming it on the absinthe. Well, wasn't it also of a higher proof? It was a higher alcohol content in it. You'll probably rock that alcohol too. So it got a it got a bad rap in that way. But what happened at the same time it got its popular place in French society, they had a phylloxia, which is a root rot, in the grapevine stock. And it, it decimated the wine industry. The wine industry went down. Absence was coming up. Well, the wine industry couldn't stand for it. They said, wine is the national drink of France, not this absent. So they got together with the political powers that be, and they had to get a campaign to kill the competition. And they had to find the one thing in absence that's not in any other liquor at the time, Wormwood. So and, they had to make it a villain. And so they also didn't want the temperance. Uh, and the temperance thing. people was going on too. And they helped the lobbyists or the wine industry by saying absinthe is bad for you also. Now they were against other liquors too, but absinthe was one of the main ones they went after. And I think it had a lot to do with joining forces with the wine lobbyist people. And um, they zeroed in not on Pernod, because they never made the claim that Pernod will kill you. They had just, just, just absent in general, and they were using examples from these people that were on this adulterated absent, having reactions and going to a crazy house and things like that. And they used them as the example of what absent will do to you. And they did a test where they would pump a poor rat full of a whole liter of absent or something, and it died. They said, well, look what it did to the rat. Well, I guess so. You pump up a rat full of water and it would kill it. But it, it all worked in their favor, and they villainized absent. It became a scapegoat. It became a scapegoat for the temperance movement and for the wine lobbyists to get rid of it. And that's what caused it to be banned in Switzerland in 1910, and it wasn't until 1915 in Paris when it was finally banned. So that's what, that's what did it, uh, 1912 in the United States. And even though it was banned here, they were still producing it in Spain. Spain never stopped. Pernod even moved one of their distillery, um, Pernod SA, over to Tarragona, to Spain. So they were it was still being produced. It wasn't illegal in Spain or London. Mm -hmm. They never made it illegal. So it was still out there. Yeah, it was still available. Yeah. So tell me about what was going on in New Orleans during, during let's say, the last half of the uh, 19th century and beginning of the 20th. Well, absent in New Orleans was popular, like I said, from early on. And it was right here a little different than in Paris. In, in France, you would go to a, a bar or a bistro and you would order your absinthe and they would bring it to you. Most probably with a shot in the glass already, or they might bring a totet or something to the table, and you would prepare it yourself. Mm -hmm. Seems like here in the States, it was more of a thing where the bartender would fix it and give it to you. Because mm -hmm. you don't find very, very, very few mentions of absinthe spoons being used in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's more of a French thing. So 
In an example of the Olapsen house, they started using the dripping fountains in 1874. So the Olapsen house on Bourbon Street and Bourbon in Vienna. Okay. Bourbon in Vienna. They started using the process of dripping in 1874. And they they had absinthe in there. And the fountains that are there are more than likely products of, of solar water. And there's a, been a big misconception on the absinthe house and those fountains in that they claim the absinthe ate the marble. And that's what pitted. Well, if you're sitting there looking at this and you think, well, I'm going to drink this thing that's eating the hole in marble, I don't think so. <laughs> you know? So it's more likely that those fountains were, were originally used in the round because there were four spigots on them to serve soda water, which is a big medicinal drink. Um, in the 1860s, 1870s. And anyway, the gentleman that, that leased the building and leased the bar downstairs started using the dripping method. And he would do, like I said, fix it himself and serve to the clients. He would prop it. Mm -hmm. So that was just the all the vogue, and it was a French thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it stayed popular, like I said, till the ban. And even after the ban, there were, you know, Prohibition didn't go too big here, and especially in Louisiana. That too many, they said there were too many bayous and inlets to smuggle in liquor. Uh -huh. So it never really took hold. And an old aunt of mine once told me she lived in Prohibition. She said, we did everything we could to disobey the law. Mm -hmm. They were making stuff at home and everything else. And people just, that's just what they did. Right. You know, they weren't going to let the government dictate that to them. Right. But absence stayed popular. And like I said, it's been a resurgence of it now. And the museum is basically showcasing the old and the new to where it's educating the people to do away with this, uh, this, this old notion of absence is poison, absence will kill you, absence will make you hallucinate and all this stuff. Drank in moderation, it's no worse than any other liquor in moderation. You drink too much. Um, gin, gin is made of juniper, juniper berries. Juniper berries by themselves are poison. But yet you distill it properly in the right mixture and you don't overdo it, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and so these people that say, Oh, how much action do I have to drink before I start hallucinating? Well, how much gin do you have to drink before you start hallucinating? Right. You know, so it's that same kind of thing. But the museum was put together basically to explain and to educate the public not to have this whole notion. Try the absinthe. In today's absinthe, all of them taste a little bit different. They, they, they've been putting their signature notes on them. Some might have um, hibiscus flowers in it. Some of them might have eucalyptus in it. Some of them might have lemongrass. Some of them might have a citrus aftertaste or a, a woodsy mushroom um, flavor. So one try of absinthe doesn't mean they all taste like that. Now, yes, the overbearing, or not overbearing, but common note to most of it will be a little bit of anisius. Mm -hmm. But with the right combination of other herbs that they use, the fennel, the hops, and things like that, it's a very cool and refreshing drink. Well worth a trial you've never had. So do you like yours with sugar? I take mine with sugar. Um, uh, some people I know don't take it with sugar, they don't want it, and that's just a personal preference. Mm -hmm. Some people I know use two lumps of sugar. You know, so it, it's a personal preference thing, but that's why the spoons were created in France. They liked the sugar with it, and the spoons, the, the, the style of the spoon has nothing to do with the fixing of it. It's just the purpose of the slotted spoon to, when you pour the water over the sugar cube, 
the old sugar dissolved a lot less than the new refined sugar did. So you had to drip the water slowly over till it broke down and it could filter through the slots in the spoon into the liquor. If you just throw the sugar in the liquor and stir it, it's not going to dissolve. Mm -hmm. You had to dissolve it and then you could fix it to your strength you wanted with the water dripping in it. And the water actually falling from the spoon into the glass helps the mixing of the oils. And that's why you get that lotion and turning and turbulence. In so the, the oil is... The is, oil of the, of the herbs. Right. And that oil is dissolved in the alcohol, it but mixes. it won't dissolve in the water. So it comes out of solution. Right. And that's what you see right. the and cloudy. you see it clouding and, yes. and, and turning and turbulating inside there. So that's basically what it is. And it, it's just, it's... They say it's similar to like a Japanese tea ceremony. It's a drink that's to be savored and sipped. It's not a shot. It's not a jello shot. You don't drink absinthe straight. Um, it's a drink to sit down and enjoy your surroundings and enjoy company and just enjoy the drink. My favorite thing about it is just the perfume of it. You can tell when someone's drinking absinthe. It's just unmistakable. It really smells wonderful. There was a, a, I read an article in an old newspaper that said at five o'clock, which they call the green hour in Paris, in up on the hill in Montmartre, they said the the the, the smell of the absinthe would come down the hill like a fog in the evening because so many cafes were serving it wow. that if you were in the streets below. It, it would just come down in the evening like a fog and you could smell it. And it's, you know what I'm talking about. You can smell it. Someone's sitting next to you drinking an absinthe. They're like, what are you drinking? Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll really know. Amazing. Yeah. But we, we're trying to educate the public. And like I said, we have examples of all the old and the new, but mostly a lot of old, to show that this was a, a um, process. So one thing I, I want to talk to you about, and something that I know is covered in the museum, is some of the, the lore and the mythology that was actually encouraged by a lot of the artists that were drinking, whether it was somebody like Oscar Wilde or Toulouse Lautrec or whatever. I think that they kind of were in love with their own mythology. And yeah, uh, that, that kind of seems like that's the case. And, and some of it may have been even more flowered up after the fact. Right. You know? <laughs> Um, it was a popular drink at the time amongst the artistic type people. It was the thing to be drinking. It was called your muse. It inspired you supposedly to write poetry, to compose music, or to um, paint a picture. Paint a picture. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in, the, in the instance of Van Gogh, they say, oh, that white color off his ear. Well, the man was eating his paints too, so that doesn't really account for a lot. He was, mm -hmm. he was getting that, the turpines from the, the cedar and the oils and the paints he was eating that at one point so i mean he had an addictive personality apparently so absent would have fit the bill with him yeah. um and cheap absent most probably so one of my favorite artifacts is the fan with the rats on it that's from the so tell me about that that's from the cafe rat mort um they used to have it it was up in i forget the name of the circle it's a circle area up in Walmart. And the cafe even had a rat uh, 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 effigy of a rat hanging over the awning when you went in. <laughs> and this fan has the little rats all on it. And I think we also have in there a dinner plate from Rat Mart. And it's got the, the rats dueling with the swords. 
in it. And I don't know why that, that picked up as a, a symbol for that place, but it was a popular hangout for the artistic people. And if, you got to remember this too. At the time in polite society, when all this was in the boat in France, it was impolite to sit at a bar and drink for hours on end. Like you do now, you go to a barroom and you camp out. They didn't do that. What they did was they basically were bar houses. They would go to one bar and have a drink or two and then leave and go to another one. Uh-huh. So they weren't they weren't in one place. weren't being branded as a, a um, bar flop, so right. to say. not to say that they didn't drink a good bit when they were there, but they wasn't they didn't go overboard. Impolite to just sit there and drink all week. So, did um, do you continue to collect? Yes, it's getting harder and harder to find odd things, and they get to be pricey sometimes. The really interesting stuff, but um, there's I do come across little things now and then that are of interest that just kind of fit the story a little more. There was a story I found not too long ago in regards to New Orleans at the old Axon House that I think it was 1856. There was a um, anti-Spanish settlement going on with something going on with Cuba. The United States was trying to take over Cuba or do something with Cuba. And there was a huge anti-Spanish settlement going on. And the gentleman that was running the old Axon House his place was basically a riot of people broke in, broke most of the bottles, broke up the inside of the place, and he sued the city for not protecting his business. He lost. The city said it wasn't their fault. But they talk about the bottles of absinthe being smashed in the street and whatnot. So um, it was very popular back then that you had things going on. And, and that's just one little story. There are so many stories with the Absent House. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But the popularity of Absent has been from the beginning and it hasn't stopped. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I hope that everybody can come visit the gallery here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans next time you're in the city. And Hope that we can continue to have Ray's interesting and <laughs> obsessive collection uh, here at the museum. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.